0: Hey guys, it's Mike. And real quick, just wanted to let you know that as we're coming up uh, towards the end of the first season, I'd really like to get your feedback on how you've enjoyed the show this far. Or if you haven't, uh, we have a survey up through Google Forms, and I would really appreciate it if you guys would take just a couple minutes of your time to fill out the survey. It's only 10 questions long. All you need to do is go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash basementloungepod, and you can find the survey as our pinned post there at the top of our feed. just takes 10 questions, a couple of minutes. Please, it really helps us know what you like and what you didn't like we want you to be as honest as you possibly can be we're looking for any kind of constructive criticism you can give us so we know how to better the show going into next season once again go to our facebook page facebook.com slash basement lounge pod and check out the pin post thank you guys so much and enjoy today's episode
1: wow is this thing on i got oh uh, well, let me see uh one two three Oh, okay, it's ready for you, Arthur. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks, guys, for checking that mic for me. Hey, you're listening to the Basement Lounge. Ronald, great job, Art. Thanks, Mickey.
0: Hey, Basement Lounge fans, I want to give a shout-out to the awesome VIPs who are helping make this show possible by supporting it on Patreon. Many thanks go to Whitney Latin, Jody McDermott, Joey Craig, Greg Gray, Soul HS, and my wonderful mother, Melissa Shea. If you want to join our group of VIPs, just go to patreon.com slash basementloungepod and sign up for a mere $3 a month to get all kinds of cool perks like stickers, shout-outs, Discord hangouts, and so much more. Once again, that's patreon.com slash basementloungepod. And now... On with the show. Grab a drink, pull up a chair, and settle in. Because you're in The Basement Lounge. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is you happen to be listening to this. Welcome to another episode of The Basement Lounge. This is the cool, chill, relaxed place where we have uh, the kind of conversations you'd have with somebody over cocktails. Occasionally we have cocktails when we can actually do this show in the studio. That hasn't happened in a while. But uh, also for our current guest, it's a little early in the day to be drinking. Even if he is, though, I'm not going to judge. That's that's fine. Uh, our, our guest today is a, a director, a teacher, a podcast host, and now a author. Uh, we are so, ha- so happy to have him on the show. One of the co-hosts of the Cinephiles podcast, Mr. Steve Morris. Steve, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me virtually into your
0: basement. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, absolutely. This is not a lie. This is actually in a basement in my mom's basement. I am that guy um, who's hosting a podcast out of his mother's basement. But uh, such is the world we live in uh, uh, nowadays.
1: Well, I'm sitting here in my garage. At least it was a garage about 100 years ago. Um now it's my office, so you know, basement to a garage, virtual it, podcast. It seems pretty good. That's a I, looking at it here on the camera. That's a nicely converted garage. Thank you. We did it. About it's it's honestly it's my uh, it's like my fortress of solitude. It's become a very a very important room, <laughs> <laughs> the most important room in the house for me.
0: Everyone's got one of those. Everyone has has, got, and if you don't, you should. I, I highly recommend you 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 have a you have an escape in your own, especially nowadays where we're. We're all stuck at home. If you can't have that one place to go to, just kind of escape reality for a little while, um, it drives you crazy. It's true. Um, so we're we're going to get into a lot of things here today. Of course, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the cinephiles. We're going to talk about your upcoming book, the director's toolbox. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about you and get to know you, uh, longtime listener uh, of the cinephiles. You know, we get to hear a lot about your, your tastes in film and, and your appreciations for different things. And every once in a while, we get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain to know more about, about you and about John and and your personal life, especially when it comes to the way films have, have affected you. Um, But you've, you've grown up in, in the California,
1: you've grown up in California your whole life. Yep. I was born in the San Francisco Bay area. And not only that, I am a fifth generation Californian. Wow, five generations! Yeah, my my first uh, ancestor is a guy named Henry Greenberg who came to California right before it came became a state in 1848. Oh so, wow! And and I've had three or I think three generations on all sides in San Francisco, born in San Francisco. I'm the first of my family to leave San Francisco, so it was everyone was really disappointed when I moved to LA. <laughs> oh gee! So yeah, I'm an old school Californian. So you, you grow up, you grow up and, and you live your whole life
0: in, in, in a state, in a city, really, two cities just surrounded by, by art and a variety of different kinds of culture. Um, how does that, you know, do you, do you think that that was kind of what shaped you into, into getting into filmmaking and your appreciation for film is kind of being kind of in, in, uh, inundated with that your whole life?
1: That's a great question. I don't know that I've ever thought of it quite that way. I certainly, I think the influence of growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area is huge on me. There's Even though I've lived in L.A. now for 25 years, 26 years almost, um, I, I'm still very much a San Franciscan with that kind of culture and philosophy. Um, there was no one artistic in my family. You know, my dad is an optometrist. My mom is a professional do-gooder you know, running school boards and library commissions. And she directed a Jewish museum. She, you oh, know, wow. like that's sort of her uh, always having that. And she was the chairman of the uh, Golden West chapter of the ALS Association, which is what my dad passed away from. Oh, wow. And so she's been, you know, just doing good deeds since my entire life. But there was no artist. There was no... uh no writers, no photographers. I came from a very practical Jewish business kind of family. And, um, uh, but we they did take me to the theater. And, and so that certainly was an influence. But honestly, I think the big thing is like a lot of people my age, I watched a lot of TV. I read a lot of comic books and I was acting in, I acted in my first play when I was six. And I don't think there was a year I didn't act in anything until my early 20s. Um, and so doing creating things started directing when I was in high school started writing when Uh, when I was in college and just kind of went from there and then went to film school course So like I think it was sort of more a natural progression of that I never thought about it being Where I grew up, although that's obviously a huge influence on me. So that's a really that was a really good question
0: Thank you. Well, thank you. There you go folks. You heard it here um with um with being in, in an area so so surrounded by it all the time, and now obviously hosting a podcast where you are you are taking deep dives into film, being a directing instructor, um, how do how do you disconnect from it all? Because you got to figure every once in a while you need to just turn that part of your brain off, otherwise you would you risk getting bored of it or frustrated with it. How, what what do you do to disconnect from all of that and give yourself kind of a refresh?
1: Books, books and podcasts for me. I listen constantly to books on Audible, constantly to podcasts. A number of books, you know, it's fairly ridiculous how much I listen. Okay, my wife makes fun of me because I will literally, if I'm going upstairs to like put the dishes in the dishwasher, I'll put my headphones in so I can listen to 45 more seconds of my book while I'm doing it. Um, yeah, I'm obsessive and, and particularly now in this time of COVID when we're, Uh, quarantined, that time, you know, we were talking a little bit, or we said when we first got on the podcast, like that time alone, I I live in the hills in Echo Park in Los Angeles with lots of steep hills and lots of stairs. And that's my main exercise. Every night, put my headphones on, I go walk up and down stairs, look at the beautiful view of downtown and just have a little time to myself. It's very, it's super important to me. Were you were you
0: like me, where you were the guy who in college walked around campus with with headphones on or or a
1: book in your hand and just kind of um, just went on autopilot? Not so much the headphones. I yeah. always had a book with me, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't like reading at the time. You know, like I wasn't I wasn't the walking, reader. Um, was walking but, reader, but but definitely always had a book with me.
0: Yeah, I was a walking reader. I was like a zombie. Yet I had I had where I was going memorized to where it was almost like. Uh, I, I never, like, I never had a problem running into things. Uh, but I, I did occasionally tune people out in mid sentence. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned comic books, and and, and you and I, uh, tweeted back and forth about this a little bit. Uh, about a month ago, uh, we we had the passing of, of Dennis O'Neill. Um, I- recently, right. and it was it was so strange because he passed away. I had just started collecting his uh, Green Lantern Green Arrow series. Um and have been in love and it was one of those it was it was completely by happenstance I happened to be reading an issue and I looked at the cover and I realized this is the guy who just passed away um and and in my own research reading up on Dennis O'Neill about his the, creating the character of like Ra, the Razal Ghul um dealing with issues in his comics like you know addiction dealing with you know he was the one that brought up Tony Stark's alcoholism and 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 the drug addiction of Speedy um it has have were comic books, uh, one? You because you mentioned earlier, you know, r- growing up reading comic books was.
1: Has there what what role have they kind of played for you in in your career and in your life? It's huge, huge role. Um, so first of all, those Green Lantern, Green Arrow, you could see there are a bunch of white comic book boxes on my wall. I know we're we're on audio, but they're sitting (laughs) in those boxes right over there. I remember, you know, when I started to go deeper into comics and that got recommended to me in like the, you know, the mid eighties or something. And I went to the comic book store and found those slowly, but surely found all those old issues of those comics, because they're the first ones that really delved into, like said, Oh, comics could actually talk about. As you said, drug addiction or racism or things like that. And it's a really short little run of comics, but it's super important. And uh and I'll tell you how much comics have influenced me in my career. And it actually relates to to Denny O'Neill. So I um uh, grew up reading them obviously and it never occurred to me that there were humans that actually made these things that somebody because I'm so the not an artist I can't draw it all I cried in art class. Like I have really bad small motor skills. Like if you said to me. Like big motor schools, I'm fine. I've done martial arts for 30 years, but, but like small motor skills, like you said, Steve, thread a needle and I would be drenched <laughs> in sweat. <You> know, my <laughs> hand would start to shake. It would be so stressful. So it never occurred to me to draw. And then when I was in high school, I met this guy, uh, Jeff Johnson, and uh, Jeff was wanted to be a comic book artist. And so he was drawing and the very first thing I wrote, it never occurred to me to be a writer except that he was needed something to submit to comics. And I said, well, I'll write something. And then rather than write, you know, a little 10 page something, I wrote a, as, as idiot first time writers do, I said, I'm going to write the ultimate Nightwing story. Yeah. So I wrote like a four part, huge Epic story about Nightwing's origins or something. And I had no idea how to write a comic or what the format was. So it was like 50 pages. So the first thing I ever wrote and my friend was like, I just needed like, a couple of pages to draw. I can't draw this, you know, hundred page. Multi. I just need something to submit. And uh, I went with him because he would go to the comic book conventions because that's how comic book artists would get work is you would walk up to an artist or an editor and you'd have your portfolio and you'd show it to him. So I did this with him all the time. And I went, Oh, well, I'll go with you and I'll bring my giant tome <laughs> of a Nightwing story. And the first person I talked to was Denny O'Neill. Met him at a comic book convention, and and he tried to hand him this thing. And he, in the nicest, most lovely way, said, no, (laughs) this is not how it works. No one will ever read this. First of all, it's the wrong format. Second of all, no one is going to buy the ultimate Nightwing story from a first-time writer. You need to write something that is not... you know, key important thing, you need to write what we call like a bubble episode or something, you need to write something simple, you need to put it as a proposal. And, and that's how you're going to break in as a comic book writer. And so he and I, and I corresponded with him a few times after that, because he was nice enough to, you know, you could write to, I think he was a DC at the time, you could write to DC care of Denny O'Neill, and or Denny O'Neill care of DC, and then they would and he would write back and that was so he was a really important person and this was right at the time that he was writing the question which was such oh, a good comic. Wow. um because this is you know late 80s early 90s um and so yeah he was a really important guy and a really nice guy at that time in my life
0: that's the, first of all the question one of the lesser known underappreciated uh and, and for an yeah. for what, what an era for the question to exist in, in that late 80s when when government conspiracies are at an all-time high um, yeah we don't have any
1: conspiracies like that now. No, no no not at
0: all no not at all <laughs> but um i remember uh, when i first really because you know i grew up i grew up in a small town area in in, in ohio um, god that hasn't changed at all in 20 years um, but uh, comic books weren't readily available so for me it was a lot of whenever like mark's department store would occasionally get some trade paperbacks into their little book section and stuff you know so my earliest reads were stuff by like Grant morrison um sure his, his new his new world order run of of justice league uh was really good um besides denny o'neill were there any particular or have there been any particular writers or
1: or, or artists uh in comic books that have have been your absolute favorites you can't beat alan moore and frank miller Oh, I mean, that's I know. you know, I mean, I'm in high school, I graduated high school in 86. Mm-hmm. And so that is the golden year. That's Watchmen yeah. and Dark Knight. That's, you know, Batman year one, I think comes out right after that. And of course, I'd read Ronin and the Daredevil run from Frank Miller. So I was mm-hmm. obsessed with him for a good decade. And uh, Alan Moore, you know, what Alan Moore does, I mean, I read Swamp Thing and Miracle Man and yeah. Watchmen and V for Vendetta, all those comics, like what Alan Moore did in comics at that time is just unbelievable. Huge um, huge, and of course, Neil, Neil Adams who drew it, uh, who drew the those Green Lantern, Green Arrow comics we we're talking about. There's Brian Boland, there's you know, this, I mean, I, you can go on and on of lists of great, great artists, but for writers, those two guys, Alan, Alan Moore created two of my absolute
0: favorite characters, which are Swamp Thing and John Constantine. I mean, I, I rank Constantine, yeah. you know, everyone's like, Who's your favorite? and I'm like, Other than Batman, uh, you know, John Constantine's because you know, I mean. Just the you, you talk about like what Danny O'Neill did with incorporating like addiction and things like that and serious issues into his runs. I mean, there's an entire run of Constantine where he just screws with the devil to get him to cure his lung cancer, which is still one of the greatest runs of, of Hellblazer well, of all time. And,
1: and and there, you know, there might not be a Frank Miller if there's no Danny O'Neill because yeah. he's the editor on those Daredevil comics where he becomes a writer or artist for the first time.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Also, I, I found this out that this is just, just a little fun aside. Denny is the one who created the character of Optimus Prime. Um I did not know that. He he created it and named it, and I was like, that's just that's just awesome. I love it. I I after after we had the Twitter exchange and then in prepping for this, and I was researching Danny O'Neill and I was like, the things he the man had his hand in are just it's it's crazy how much he has shaped what is now considered kind of just commonplace comic book stuff. You know sure. the, the fact that he's the one who created Razal Ghul, who now I mean has been in numerous TV shows and and movies for DC characters. Um. So you um, you are a director. You have directed uh, a film called The Assistance, starring two of my favorite people, uh, Joe Mantegna and and Stacy Keach. Um. I love Stacy Keach. Um. Me too. Uh, did you ever, completely completely off base? Did you ever watch? christopher titus's uh sitcom titus in the early 2000s
1: i've seen a few episodes yeah stacy
0: keach plays the dad yeah
1: yeah he's so funny <laughs> he's so it, it's amazing how big his range is for yeah. for someone who you think of as like oh he plays the crusty old guy but he actually is really funny does great comedy yeah he can do a lot of stuff he shows up in a couple
0: episodes of two and a half men as like charlie's fiance's gay dad or something like that it's it's (laughs) it's delightful um but directing the assistants um you know i was kind of wanting to walk through kind of what that experience was like as far as you know for amateur filmmakers out there like me with the the process of like coming up with the script and and putting that together
1: like what that process was like for you um well starting with the script the the script really came out of having lived in la for a while and knowing uh, it I had never really written anything quite so much out of my own experience. I always wrote things that were sort of far away from me, fantasy stories and comic book stories to start. And then I became interested in, you know, issues of African-American politics and racism. And so I wrote from those perspectives and, and the assistance is the first thing I wrote that was really about me and my friends and sort of the world here. And and so the first idea was just like the, 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 the basic premise of the movie is it's a bunch of aspiring film uh, makers who come out of grad school and they're all good friends and they think their careers are going to just take off. And three years later, they're all working as assistants for various people of varying degrees of niceness and, uh, and they feel really stuck and really a sense of failure and a sense of the world is not going the way it was supposed to and I'm maybe not who I thought I was. And they realize they have the epiphany that everything that these big, powerful people do and know comes through them. And in fact, they're the ones in power. And if they all you know, pooled their resources, they could get whatever they want. And so it's a, it's a caper movie. It's like The Sting or Ocean's Eleven with these assistants conning their bosses into getting their own movie made. That's the that's the story. And so that's kind of where it started with that idea. But then as it moved along, I, you know, it's come up on the podcast several times. I don't really like bad guys. I don't like, I don't really believe, people that are just, their motivation is to be evil. You know, that's never really made sense to me. Part of that is growing up loving star Trek where you frequently kind of learn from the perspective of the other person. And, and in my experience of being here and I've known a few people in various ways who got a lot of success and those people were pretty miserable and so what started to happen is those bosses that started off as sort of the evil bosses, I couldn't not have sympathy for them. And so a lot the movie really shifted because it became, here are these people who are desperate to have what these other people have, and these other people aren't really that happy. And these other people are actually sad and lonely and isolated and they're and even though they've you know Because when you get everything that you want you really come face to face with with the problems you have in your own life And when you're put up on a pedestal as powerful people often are you disconnect from the reality, you know You you frequently lose your friends people are just you know s- Sucking up to you and you're in a position of constantly having to maintain that power or that influence and so the movie got a lot more complicated as those ideas took place because then it also became that are these friendships going to survive? Are these people who are so young and idealistic and fun and we really like them, are they actually going to be able to maintain that morality and the the closeness of the friendships as they get closer and closer to getting the power that they want? So that was sort of the the premise and the idea of how, how the film evolved as I started writing it.
0: It's such a it, it's such an interesting you know and, and the, I guess the thoughts that never occurred to me that like that's it of how um, true to life that kind of experience can be that idea of, of of coming in and thinking you've you've got this you're gonna make it there's nowhere to go but up and and for for reality to come knocking on the door. And and let you know just how difficult uh, it, it's going to be. You know, you can think you've you've got everything in the bag one minute, and then the next minute everything can be can can be just out the window, and you have to start over from square one. Um, yep. Have you had that? Have you had experiences like that, um, or did you have an experience like that with the actual making of the film, where maybe you were things were going great, and then maybe there was like just a weird, crazy setback on set or something, where you had to really
1: stop and reevaluate things. Anyone who's made films has those experiences. I mean, like, you know, now that I'm a teacher and I'm, you know, shepherding students through all of their projects, this is the big, that's the majority of it. The majority of filmmaking is putting out fires. The majority of filmmaking is you lack the resources or the time to get the things that you want to get or a location falls through or you have a scheduling problem or it rains on you and now you got to scramble to figure out how you're going to do it. Um, I think what's interesting because I, I, I wrote directed and I produced and I edited the assistants. So I, you know, and partially because I, I wanted to spend all the money I could to get what I wanted on the screen. And so the cheapest person to do all those jobs was me. Um, I can relate. And <laughs> <laughs> uns- you know, not surprising with how, you know, everything to the cinephiles, you know, everything since then has gone is like a lot of times I end up being a bit of a, uh, you know, an iron man to get all these projects done. But um, the, The thing with the assistants that was interesting is as I started directing it, the director was really frustrated with the writer. So the director guy was going, man, this writer really made some complicated things that I'm going to have to figure out how to pull off. You know, you know, the, the writer wrote a lot of checks that the director has to figure out how to cash. And then when I'm in the editing room, the editor was pretty happy with the writer, but the editor hated the director. Like that idiot! <laughs> what the fuck was he thinking? <laughs> why did he get this shot? Why didn't he correct that actor and get the line, the performance that he really wanted? Why didn't he do? Why did he do it this way? This is terrible. And what was strange about it was I felt like as I was directing it, the movie went further and further away from what the writer had intended. And then, as I was finishing the edit, it actually went back. You know, strangely enough, the movie became really was what I intended, it just was a process. Because making movies is not like a, this is the vision in my head, I will create that, I am done, it's not that way at all. It's a constant journey of discovery and of reversal, and things that you thought would work a certain way, they don't work that way, and then you have to figure out, well, do I force it to work that way, or do I adjust to what this actor did, or what this how this moment happened? It's a very complicated process, even, you know, from the lowest budget to the biggest budget, it's still that way we uh we made a
0: me and we made a horror movie last year and i remember you talk about being in, being the writer director and editor and 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 hating when you're when you're editing you hate the director i was editing the film and uh, was trying to find footage and we were we had shot the film in a park and what i kept finding was in the background i always kept this is supposed to be this abandoned park and i keep seeing people in the background that i'm getting pissed off that that the cinematographer didn't catch that. Then I realized the person in the background is always me. I was <laughs> in the background of so many shots, and I was, damn extras. Oh wait, that's that's
1: that's the director. Oh crap, that's me. Oh okay. I well, think what <laughs> people don't realize about making a movie, even a small one, is there's so many variables. Yeah. There's so many things to be thinking about all the time. Is is the is the camera move done properly? Are we staying in focus? focus you know, is the Actor saying the line the way that I want them to is the timing of the shot really working properly. There's so many things going on that a director has to pay attention to. And it's really tough sometimes <laughs> to like, you don't just be things. You're like, how did I not? There's a scene in the assistance that is, it is the greatest regret of any scene ever that I've ever made. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the film, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a scene where Stacy Keach is a garbage man, yeah. um, and it was a really hot day. It was about ninety-eight degrees that day. We were Stacy at the time was in his mid-seventies, oh. and we were worried about his health. And he insisted he, we wanted him to jump on that garbage truck and right away but we were really worried about it and he insisted on doing it. And we're like, Oh my God, is this going to be safe? And at the same time I'd had a location fall through. I had had to totally redo my schedule. I was distracted by a whole bunch of stuff. And it's my good friend playing the other garbage man in the scene. And they did it the scene in a way that was exactly not what I intended. And, uh, and I was so stressed. It was my first day of working with Stacy and, and honestly, I think because it was my friend, too, and I was so stressed with everything else that I went, that's fine the way they're doing it. And it's exactly wrong um, the way they deliver the lines, because the, the joke is, is that uh, Stacy's character isn't talking to the other people and he should be mumbling to the other garbage man. And the garbage man is acting like his answering service. But that that uh-huh. was what that was how it was written. OK, but but they didn't know that. And so my friend Josh played that part as just like an idiot who just likes to repeat things. And Stacy wasn't talking to him. He was talking to other people. So the whole scene didn't make sense. And I, and every time when I got into the editing room, I was just like, what was wrong with me? Like, why didn't I just explain what I wanted in the scene? And I never did. I didn't have the courage at that moment. I was too stressed out. I was too distracted and I just let it be what it was. And every time that scene comes up and I see it, it drives me nuts because it's a critical scene in the film. I couldn't, t- I mean, I can't take it out. Yeah. Um, and I told my friend Josh years later, I said, Oh, well, you know, this thing about the scene. And he looked at me and he's like, Oh my God, that makes so much more sense. Why didn't you tell me? Like, like I can't believe it. Like, just, you should have told me I would have done it. I didn't understand the scene. And I was like, yeah, I just blew it. I totally blew it. Uh, it, is, yeah. it is the biggest blowing it of any directing I've ever done.
0: Well, speaking of other directing that you've done, uh, Steve, I love sharks. I love sharks. And you you directed a, a shark documentary, um, which I can't even begin to wrap my head around how you get how you get into this process. Um, I, I've made documentaries myself, but ones that involve sharks, not, not so much. How, how did you how did you stumble upon this project?
1: That's the right word. Stumble upon it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that project that I stumbled upon, but but going into the nature film world uh, was never anything I intended. It's not even a, it's not that I haven't watched and liked some nature films, but that's not my thing. You know, like if I was going to do documentaries, i would probably much more of a history documentary mm-hmm. kind of person. Uh, it was just that I needed a, a gig and coming out of film school, my first job was doing quality control on DVDs which was just the most boring and stupid thing in the world. But through that, I started me- meeting some of the people that made DVDs. And because uh, and I learned how to edit in film school, so I started editing behind-the-scenes stuff for DVDs. So I did, you know, all those, you know, I did like things like Step in a Liquid, and I did Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, and I did all wow. these, you know, would make all these little mini documentaries. So suddenly, I'm like a documentary filmmaker in a very minor way, and a buddy of mine is working for the Cousteaus as an editor. Uh, a guy who I had written a film that he had directed when we were in film school and they needed to bring someone in. And so I started editing for the Cousteau's. And so suddenly I'm editing underwater footage. And then that led me to this guy, Mike Hoover and our first shark project, which was uh, called mind of the demon. And um, Hoover needed someone to, it was supposed to be at national geographic. And then that fell through. And now he has a, a whole bunch of footage and no nothing cut and doesn't have a home. And so I edited he said, I need somebody to edit the promo. So I edit this promo to try to sell the film. Uh, I edit the promo. We sell the film to CBS. And then Hoover goes, well, why don't you just edit the film? I go, okay. And then because of who I am and because of who Hoover is, he just kind of went, well, here, why don't you handle this interview? Well, why don't you do this thing? Well, how do you, what else do you think we should shoot? And so more, and of course, I'm never a person who goes away from creative control of things. Mm-hmm. So I just inserted myself more and more. And from that point forward, there were, you know, probably a dozen projects that most of which never went off the ground that Hoover was like, well, Steve Morris is my partner. So when it came, after I finished the assistance, when it came time to make this second shark film that he had raised money for, he said, well, you should be the director. And we came up with a deal, which was sort of, he ran the expedition because he is You've heard me talk about it, I'm sure, on the show. Hoover is literally the most interesting person in the world. Like, the the (laughs) number of stories and things that he's done, and I'm really not joking. I mean, like, climbed Everest, five trips to Antarctica. He windsurfed from Alaska to the Soviet Union across the Bering Strait. He parachuted into Papua New Guinea to live among the natives for three months. He um, circumnavigated the globe vertically, so Cross both poles using no planes, so just horses and trucks and boats. He uh, he spent three years embedded with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan during the war against the Soviets, filming for sixty minutes and on and on and on. Like he's just this unbelievably fascinating person, and so it's his boat. He wanted to do another shark movie. the The project is his idea. He brought that team of people. And he, and he said, I'll be in charge of the expedition. You're in charge of making the movie. And I said, I'll do it. But the only um, requirement is that he has to be in the movie because when we did the first shark film, which was all his idea, he's not in the film. And I'm like, you're the most interesting person here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I need you to be in the movie. And he's an asshole too. I mean, he's like a very <laughs> difficult, complicated, uh, controversial person mm-hmm. and I was like I have to have you on camera and so that's how that second shark film came about and uh, I, I didn't
0: mention it but yeah great white shark beyond the cage of fear uh, is is that one um, that one I haven't had a chance to watch yet but I, I love it's sharks. good I, I look look, for- watch it let me know what you think I will I look forward to shark week the way most people look forward to March Madness so it's yeah, I it.
1: Well, sharks. this is so it's it's all, first of all it's it's free on Amazon Prime. So anyone oh, who's sweet. got Amazon Prime, uh, you should t- check it out. Um it is in a lot of ways the anti shark week.
0: No. Oh, geez.
1: It's it's the whole approach is Hey guys, this is Mike
0: Shea, and I want to talk to you about Anchor. Yes, Anchor is the brand new free way for you to get your podcast career off and running without any cost to you. Simply download the Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast to give you everything you need in one place for free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. Their creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast podcast so it sounds play magnifique without having to worry about all the costly setup. They'll even distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, all of that. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. They set you up with awesome sponsors. All you got to do is record a script, kind of like what I'm doing now, throw it onto your show and start making money. Once again, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get your podcast career off and running right now just do it already
1: really the opposite
0: of shark week i gotta i gotta ask are you you like me in the sense that i I know you kind of touched on this i'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to um uh you know working on project The, the first the first few films i made i wrote directed edited shot and and acted in and, and the more I, the more I did that, the more I realized that, um, it was driving me crazy because by the end of the project, I hated it because I had had my hands my hand in it so much to the point where this last one, I finally stepped aside and just let myself just direct and, and write. And I found that I enjoyed my time on the film a lot more as, as someone, I know you've mentioned, you've, you've done a little bit of everything. Um, do you find that you had kind of a similar situation with yourself?
1: A Really complicated question. When I when I finished this second shark film, I decided I would never do it again, that that I couldn't, not that I would never make a film again, but that I could never Iron Man a movie like that. Right. Um, Because it wasn't just that I was the writer and the director and the editor and the narrator. It's that I was the assistant editor. And I was the whole post-production department and I, uh, supervised the contracts and it was the music supervisor and the music editor. And, you know, I just did. And so there was, and I literally am up till two or three in the morning every night trying to make a deadline. Cause we sold it in Europe first. And I was like, oh. and I'm the only person there, you know? And I just went, I can't, I can't do that to myself. Like mm. physically I'm, I, I'm too old. I can't do that process. Um, I really wish on the assistance i had had an editor. Mm-hmm. That was the, that's the big job I would like to fire myself from. Not that I wouldn't do some editing. <laughs> yeah. And I think I'm a good editor, but that I think that movie would have benefited from another perspective. You know, I had, I had a buddy of mine from film school who's a fantastic editor and I wanted to hire him and, you know, it would probably have cost me $30,000 or something because he's a great editor and he deserves to make the movie, you know, the money that he deserves to make. And I went, well, I could pay Adam $30,000, which he's totally worth. Uh, or I can put that money into the film and edit it myself. And that's what I decided to do. And I think that was a, it's not that I'm not proud of the movie. I, li- I like the movie a lot. But what having a different editor would have done is it's very difficult to see a thing other than the way you see it, you know, is that I, because I had written it, I directed it, you, your, your mind gets, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a trench, you know, you dig this deep a gutter for yourself and it's hard to escape it. And if I'd had Adam who I'd edited other projects with before, he could say, Steve, go away. I'm going to do some stuff. And I would come back and probably hate a bunch of what he did, but some of what he did, you know, cause he'll do a crazy cut and I'll, And I would come in, I know and go, Oh, this is a completely different way to look at this. This is a different structure. This is, and that's it. And to have someone, the other disadvantage of sort of being the, you know, the jack of all trades on a film, there's nobody saying no to you. Is sometimes, it's really important to have people who can come in and say, you're crazy, this doesn't work, don't do it this way. And those are really important people to have in your life anyway, you know, to keep you on track, to, to, to make you think about your project in a different way. So. Yeah, I, I definitely do think it's better for your mental health to have other people to collaborate <laughs> with. Um, it's just most frequently a question of money and time, you know. Yeah. Can you I, afford them? When you're when you're making a movie on a on a shoestring
0: budget, something that's like, well, I can save money by doing that myself. And by the time you're done, you you hate everything about it because you're so tired of it. Um, so that takes us into you're working on you have a book called The Director's Toolbox that is um in the in 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 the works um can you tell us a little bit about that is it is it all super hush hush um what can you tell us about it
1: i i don't know it's hush hush it's funny because it's kind of come out more and more lately that i'm working (laughs) on this thing and i'm always sort of like well it's not done yet man Uh It's still got a ways to go about halfway through it um and the the goal it's pretty i don't think there's another book out there that kind of does what this book is trying to do because there are a lot of books about filmmaking like there's there's books that are a famous filmmaker talking about how they made their movies like rebel without a crew by robert rodriguez pops to mind but also you know biographies of all sorts of filmmakers that you you know or or adventures in the screen trade is another you know where it's 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 a famous person who's kind of telling you about their life's work Mm -hmm. and then there's really these in the weeds technical books which you've made independent films you've probably seen some of the how to produce your low budget movie. Mm -hmm. And there are copies of contracts and copies of this is how you do this thing or things that are really in the weeds about cinematography or editing or specific skills or books on acting, things like that. And what my book is, is sort of taking you, the goal is to take you through the entire creative process from conception to finishing a film and post and applying some basic theoretical principles, that sounds a little highfalutin, Mm -hmm. applying the basic idea that everything, every decision you make should be motivated by story. So that when you're deciding your schedule or when you're deciding who to cast or how to edit or where to put the camera or what color scheme you want your costumes to be in, all of those decisions should relate back to the fundamental principles of the story you're trying to tell. They're all there to reinforce and support the story. So. That's why the movie is starting with the conception of that story and then going through the entire process through Well, how do we work with our cinematographer? How do we work with actors? How do we develop the script? How do we work with a production designer and dealing with a lot of things that come up of just like The logistics and communication and leadership skills necessary to direct the film And the the idea is that all of these things its something I talk about in my class a lot will go into your director's toolbox. So you have all, and that your toolbox over time in your career as a director is going to grow and grow and grow as you develop more and more technique to deal with all the problems and challenges that come up on making a film.
0: That's uh, yeah, it, that you, you mentioned, yeah, there's, there's so many, so many books out there. You know, I, I had a friend gift me one,
1: uh, last
0: year called save the cat. It's a book on, on screenwriting. Sure. Yeah.
1: I know. Save the cat. Um, and it, that's it, one of the, that's one of the big three or four screenwriting books.
0: Yeah. It's, it's
1: been an interesting
0: read and I've, I've had some fun doing some of the exercises in it, but yeah, there's the same thing with, you know, I've been, I've been doing up for a long time and you know, there's, there's God knows how many books out there on how, on how to write your joke and how to, but I, I find that with anything creative, it really comes like there are, there are very few things that are, um, like objective a lot of it's just kind of
1: do things the way that work best for you. Would you, would, would you, would you agree, disagree? Totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, like when I, I, I finished writing the section on screenwriting and there are screenwriters I know who outline everything to the nth degree. There's screenwriters I know who write a character bio of, you know, the entire history of each of their characters. There's screenwriters I know who have, you know, three by five cards and they have a wall and they put all the three by five cards on the wall and they rearrange them. And I'm usually one who starts writing on page one and goes forward. And, um, which is more sort of the Stephen King method of writing of like, I'm just discovering it as I go. And of course I have ideas of where I think it's going to go. And then what usually happens is I discover something about a character or an idea or a relationship or a plot point. And then I have to go back to the beginning and incorporate that new idea through the script. And then I go forward a little more and then I go back to the beginning and forward, it's not very efficient, but that's how I found that writing works best for me. And, um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of it, again, this is what I mean by the director's toolbox is you go, well, this tool is useful to me. I mean, we talked about on the show, uh, Bruce Lee and his quote that I love, which is study everything, take what is useful, discard the rest. And the mistake most people make with that quote is they just are discarding things before they study them, you know, is that the key is to really study, really understand that tool and then decide if that's useful for me at this time. Um, and, and so, yeah, I absolutely believe there are different approaches, same like they're different approaches to acting, totally different approaches. And, and, and the idea of like, okay, you're going to read a book on the structure of how a joke works. How many people who study that book do you think end up being very funny comedians?
0: So few, one of the yeah. best, one of the best decisions I ever made as a stand up because you know, those are the books you get when you first, the best decision I ever made was to throw that book out
1: Yeah, and then move away from it. I I mean, if someone, first of all, someone needs to explain, if if you're going to mechanically learn how to tell a joke, you're probably not that funny. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like the key is to be, you have to have an understanding of humor on some level. And you have to, you know, because I've listened to Mark Maron podcast forever. I love stand up uh, Mm -hmm. comics. And like, you know, all of them say the key at some point, you're going to find your voice. You're going to find who you are on stage. And like Jerry Seinfeld is really different from Mark Maron. And I'm sure both of them could talk a lot. I've heard both of them talk a lot about the structure of a joke, but it's the, you know, and this is one of the issues I have with so many screenwriting books. Um, Save the cat's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting version of it, is they want to give you the secret. Here's how you do it. And then people imitate what they think is the structure that they see. And even though those things exist in film, I don't know anybody, screenwriters, who say, like, oh, I need I need my second act reversal, or I need this moment that's supposed to happen on page 84. What do I, no one talks like that. They go, my character's in this situation, and I'm not sure how to get them from here to there, or I haven't set up this thing right, or it's not emotionally as powerful as I want it to be when they make this decision. I mean, that's a writer's talk, you know, not about the, you know, the inciting incident and the you know, or or Blake Snyder's "Here Are the Ten Different Kinds of Film." They're total that. That's a totally fun book to read, and it is useful in some ways. But you can't take. I don't believe that taking what he said and just trying to write that is going to be very useful to a screenwriter. Right. It's not that I, I like the book, but 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 there's no secret. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's a way to almost kind of just kickstart, maybe just give you an idea
0: of how to get started. But you eventually have to right build build right and 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 build the cart yourself and yeah um so we we that's going to take us into um what uh people listening who are familiar with you are probably waiting for us to talk about is you know when you talk about the process of filmmaking and doing things your own way let's get into the podcast the cinephiles uh which you have been you have been co-hosting with john roca for um geez how long now it's four years four years you guys have done hundreds of episodes um, uh, you just recently did um, a two-parter for inception and 1776 um, how did how did this show it, it's it's my favorite podcast and I'm not just saying that because you're here although that is something I would totally do um, what how did how did this show? It just kind of come to fruition, I guess. Where, where did where did where where did the seed get
1: planted for this? I think it started in bars, um, where John and sometimes Shannon McClung, who's mm-hmm. co-host on the Geek Buddies, and Mike Vogel, sometimes our friend Jonathan Blue or other friends, would just you know go to see a movie and then we'd be sitting in a bar having a couple of drinks and shooting the shit about film. Um, and we always had these really fun and funny conversations. And John was really taking off in terms of, uh, as a podcaster, I listened to tons and tons of podcasts. I had pretty much, you know, gotten broken on the shores of Hollywood. You know, the assistants. as much as I'm really proud of that film and it did really well at festivals and things like that, we got with a very unsavory and dishonest uh, sales rep who basically tanked the film. You know, and it was so, it, it, it lost all its money and it hasn't been seen that much. And, um, you know, I just iron Man'd that shark film that we were talking about and I was burnt out from that. And I was just going, you know, what's another creative outlet? Well, I don't want to keep doing this the way I've been doing it. And I went to John and said, Oh, this is maybe something we can do. You know, it's because unlike making a film, which even making a small film is a massive undertaking and can cost a fair amount of money this was something that would cost very little. And at the time I didn't think it was going to be a massive undertaking and uh, just started talking about a podcast. And his deal with me was like, I'm doing eight podcasts right now. I totally want to come having conversations with you, but you're going to have to kind of find the hosting service and, and sort of figure out some of the work to get started. And the basic, you know, we came up with a couple of really basic rules, which was one, we don't talk about films that are, the films have to be 10 years or older. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is a, there's, you know, talking about films that just came out, there's a million podcasts doing that. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is we really wanted films that had stood the test of time, that we really had time to think about the quality. Cause there's some films you see when they come out and then 10 years later, you're not talking about that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And we decided that it would be a positive podcast Neither of us, you know, there's tons of places where people can tear down all sorts of stuff. And we really want to talk about things that we love. And we decided that we're not going to have people on to talk about their own movie, because, again, that's what people do on almost every interview show. So person comes on. I worked on this. We wanted to talk about things that people love. And then. The, the podcast just sort of grew over time from like a one hour, pretty simple conversation into these epic two part, <laughs> extremely complicated deep dives. And that is mostly my fault that that's happened.
0: <laughs> but you know what, as a as somebody and, and, and I'll tell you the reason why it's why it's my favorite podcast is because I'm I'm the guy kind of like you where I want to go see the movie and then I want me and my friends to go sit and and discuss it. You know, and I, I don't have living in, you know, small town in Ohio, I I don't have a lot of friends like that who can do that, you know, or I have friends who love movies, but they love movies, you know, for a reason to shove popcorn in their mouth, which is totally fine. Watch movies however you want to. But listening to the cinephiles for me is like getting to be a part of that conversation is like getting to have that conversation with people and, and dive deep in them. And you guys have done, I will say your show has Helped kind of change and evolve my appreciation for film, you know. I, you know, as you know, as I've started making my own, it's helped me become m- uh, much more appreciative of, of good storytelling and and things like that. Have you had any um, any movies you guys have done so far that have been just you know like some of your absolute favorite episodes, favorite movies to deep dive into? I
1: think the most. So I, I'll put it into two categories. There's some which are, I think, the best episodes we've done, which are things like Ken Burns' Civil War documentary mm-hmm. or West Side Story or Apocalypse Now or our Field of Dreams episodes recently. Oh, I was really proud of you guys. Um, you guys it, made me cry in the car
0: with the field of dreams episode. I'm just saying <laughs>
1: we've, we've gotten that a lot. <laughs> there have been a lot of people who said like, man, I was painting my house and just started, I was in the gym. and I just started crying. Yeah. Well, and, and you could hear me. I was crying as I was trying to get through that episode. And I think that's where it, the, I think where the episodes are the best is where it's personal for John and I, and it's a really good conversation. When the episodes are the worst, the worst thing in the in the show, I believe, and John hears me say this all the time, the worst thing is me, is that if it's just me telling you what happens in the film, this happens and then this happens and then this guy says this and it's really cool and then this guy turns and says this and then this person says this and then there's an explosion, that's really boring. And as I edit, I try to take out. As much of me as possible what's when it's really good is when we talk about this moment that happened in the movie and then John and I have a conversation or Mm -hmm. or we have a conversation with our guest. and those conversations are really the most interesting part which is why the other category I have there are a bunch of movies that I honestly don't like that much where we ended up having really great conversations in really interesting ways the biggest one being a movie I genuinely don't like which is John's guilty pleasure Zorro the gay blade oh I thought it was gonna be a different one okay no oh Armageddon I thought it was gonna be Armageddon I like, I I can appreciate Armageddon. You know, it's not, it's, I don't love it like John does, but, but, and and that was, that was a really fun episode though. The Armageddon one Yeah, and the sword of the gay blade ended up being, I think a a great episode. My guess is people don't generally listen to it because there's not a lot of love for that movie out there outside of John Rocha, but, (laughs) but we ended up having this amazing conversation about guilty pleasures and representation and what it was like for each of us growing up and why we turn to and still have a love for these films. And it ended up being a a really interesting conversation you know and I, uh, so I think you know obviously the episodes that Scott Mance has been on some of the episodes that Mike Vogel's been on the two episodes that Sasha Pearl Raver was on Pulp Fiction oh, yeah. and Chasing Amy Chasing Amy's another one where I think it's a lesser film but the conversation is one of the filthiest funniest <laughs> conversations we've ever had on the it's certainly the filthiest it's what happens when and you have Sasha, Sasha Pearl really Raver great. What
0: that's what happens when you have Sasha Pearl Raver on. Your oh show. yeah, she's fun. <laughs> she is. I uh, I will say yeah. The uh, the the I mean the Scott Mance episode for Blade Runner is I mean is is legendary. I mean that, that uh, and again like that's an episode that you know up until I I listened to that episode and I've listened to that episode probably fifty times. Um, wow. It, well, it's 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 sh- it's shaped how I appreciated Blade Runner. Um, because up to that point Blade Runner was a film that I had seen and I had liked, but. I don't know if I just didn't get it or I hadn't, or I didn't, I didn't give it the, the, the time of day and hearing how passionate about it, frankly, all three of you got, but mostly Scott Mance, um, Scott I, Nance passionate.
1: I know he's such a reserved person.
0: I, I tell you what, I had to constantly adjust my volume throughout that entire
1: episode. Turn it up, turn it, it down. I've had to learn how to record him. <laughs> <laughs> Is that I got to give him a lot of headroom because he gets real loud sometimes. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it gave me a new appreciation for the
0: film and a new way. Cause I think the only version I had seen honestly was the theatrical cut. And I think that was part of the problem. Right which is definitely the lesser version of the film, but it has, it has because of like the conversation you guys had and, and the, the new way to explore the film that it gave me. I mean, that film kind of jumped to the top of my favorite films list as a result, because I had a newfound appreciation for it. And I think that's one of the beauties of the cinephiles is it, it it at times gives people a new way to look at a film they maybe hadn't considered before.
1: Oh, that's great to hear. I mean, I think that like the goal, The goal more and more, and this is such an ambitious and ridiculous thing to say, but is like, I, I really want us to be the go-to conversation about great films. Like the, Oh, I'm going to pull out Lawrence of Arabia again. I'm going to have the cinephiles as a compendium, you know, to go through and, and, and to, you know, it's like, and it's funny because it, it never occurred to me that this is what I was doing, but my first professional editing jobs was doing behind the scenes, you know, making of movies on DVDs. And so in a weird way the cinephiles is I think the ultimate I want it to be the ultimate version of that which is because like if you listen to a commentary track one of the problems with a commentary track even though you might some of them are great but there are some moments that take five seconds in the film that take ten minutes to talk about and so if they talk about that moment that's so important for ten minutes well then in the commentary track you've missed the next nine minutes of stuff because they're talking about this old thing and now they're skipping ahead or trying to catch up and then they start chatting about oh do you remember that night that I got food poisoning they tell some story which might be really fun and while that's happening the movie is just going on and on and on and what the cinephiles can do is it can focus in with laser focus on that one moment take as much time as necessary to explore it and then move on you know so that we don't miss things. So obviously the show's so long we're going to go <laughs> through everything. But like it, it, and we can take as much time or as little time over a thing and also share our perspectives and our personal stories and things like that. Um and so I hope that particularly in the longer episodes that you someone listening will feel like a they learned a lot, b they saw things in ways that maybe they hadn't seen them before and hopefully, and this is what has evolved in the show that they have to some degree an emotional experience with the film that if it's a funny movie, we hope that they laugh listening to our podcast. And if it's field of dreams, we want, I want to make you cry, (laughs) you know, because I want you to have that emotional experience. It, uh, it,
0: it certainly, you guys, it's, and definitely wasn't the first time that that had happened. Um, you know, some of the, you know, you, you talk about revisit, you know, I, I went and revisited hunt for red October. Um, after the episode you guys did. It was one that I already knew I liked. I just hadn't seen it in you know 15 years. It's and such
1: a good movie.
0: Oh, my God. I forgot. I remember going into work the next day, and, and my friend Travis, who was my cinematographer on the last film I did, I remember telling him, I was like, I forgot how good that movie is. Like it just it had been so long since I'd seen it and rewatching it I was like how like why don't I watch this I mean other than the fact that it's a, a long heavy movie but it's like why don't I watch this one more often why do I keep rewatching um you know the Avengers a million times and you know granted I love the Avengers but you know sure it's, it's, yeah the, I have Hunt for Red October you know Blade Runner uh, uh, Field of Dreams again another one that I Went back and rewatched after listening to your show, and you know, of course, you know. I mean, the last time I watched that movie, I think was with my dad, and, and you know, in the years since he's passed, that was like, oh, damn. <laughs> By the end oh yeah, of- <laughs> no, same, same same here. Um, well, you were you were on the outlaw on the outlaw nation recently, and and John mentioned something called the Morris questions. I see. What uh, c- can you can you give us some insight into what the Morris questions are?
1: Well, you have to imagine me drunk at some party, <laughs> sitting with friends, and I'll just I don't know things pop into my mind. Um it's it's uh of just like sometimes it's very silly, sometimes it's very complicated. Uh I will give you an example. Here's a Morris question. Okay. Okay, you can increase your ability in strength, speed, intelligence, wit, charisma, some, you know, I just listed a bunch of D&D All the traits, D&D but stats, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, by 20%. Okay. But to do so, you would have to reduce some other trait of yours by 20%. What would you increase? You know, and it could be your ability to talk to new people, or it could be your writing ability. You could be your stand-up. You say, I, right now you'd be 20% funnier. Okay. But to pay for that, you're going to have to take 20% away from something else. Okay. That would be a Morris question that's oh i love those
0: oh those are fun god i had to be drunk to really answer that i, I would i that's, would I usually come up yeah drunk. that's that's those are good i i i i used to have when i was living in south carolina i had friday nights where we would all get together and we would all just get hammered and ask ourselves difficult questions It usually were you know i was 21 so they're usually sex related but um um so real quick um you know as we come up on come up on an hour here Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, just, just a little bit more just about you to kind of, you know, we started off talking about your, you know, your early beginnings and things like that in, in research, doing some research for, for this show, I stumbled upon your old blog. Oh,
1: uh, which one? The team, the team effort films blog. Oh wow, that's a long time ago.
0: Yeah, because I think I I don't remember when your last post was from, but there were there were two things I, I had I had a blast reading through it, but I I absolutely loved of uh, two things and 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 they hit me in different ways, and I think it's because you know, I I I don't have children of my own, I know you have a, you have a young son, um, but the the letter you wrote for your son when he was born, um, absolutely moved me. Um, and then there was also where you wrote your father's eulogy after your father Mm -hmm. passed away. Um, both kind of very, it's, it's, it's strange to think about how closely similar writing both of those two pieces could be one from a son to a father and one from a father to a son. Um, was, I mean, I I can't even imagine how difficult it must've been to write the piece about your father after, after he passed away. um, Were you two particularly were, I mean, just from reading, I can
1: probably were you got, you
0: guys were were pretty close.
1: Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I don't know that I would say we were close. I I cared about my dad a lot. Um, My dad, like a lot of guys from his generation was not the most touchy feely or emotional guys. Um, My dad was He's a really, it was a really interesting person. My dad was unbelievably hardworking, unbelievably disciplined. He had a, he always kind of had a plan and knew what he wanted to do. And he put, he knew how to just put his effort into it. He, he, you know, he was the kind of person where if he said, I'm going to do this and this and this, he would do exactly that. Um, He would make a plan and stick to it. That's, and, and, and because I was a creative person, I don't think he knew quite how to deal with me. Okay. He was always, I shouldn't say it that way. I don't think he knew how quite how to connect with me. Okay. Um, you know, it, is that he was always supportive, always supportive. But he was also somewhat, I think, bewildered by, by the things that I was interested in doing. Um, and so it, it, what's interesting about that eulogy, everything I said in that eulogy is true. But there are things that I said in that eulogy that I... You know, I I don't know how much you remember it, but, you know, there was a lot about my dad's competitiveness and my dad's uh, kind of rigid way of thinking. And I had people come up to me, a man come up to me. There's a thing in the eulogy about that my dad never let me win at anything. You know, that my dad, whether it was Candyland or ping pong or anything, he was my dad was an unbelievably good games player. Like he was one of the best, whether it was playing bridge or playing dominoes or playing cribbage or scrabble, he would just wipe you out. My dad's way of when we would play Trivial Pursuit, which my family played all the time. My dad, you've played Trivial Pursuit, I assume. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So my dad's way of playing was you go around, collect all your pie pieces. He would go to the center and win the game almost every time. And then his t- goal was to go around, go around the whole board again, lose every one of his pie pieces, and win the game a second time before anyone else could win. <laughs> and frequently he did it. Um, and so as a kid, I just spent my whole childhood getting my ass kicked. You know? <laughs> and I didn't understand. I remember going to a ho- another friend's house, and, and we were playing ping pong, and I said, okay, should we rally for serve? And they're like, no, no, let's just, we don't need to keep score. Let's just play for fun. And I went play for fun. What is that? What does that mean? <laughs> like, I, di- I didn't know how to do those things because in my house, games were just serious. And when I was much older, when I might have my when my dad was even starting to get sick is I said to him, you know, like you never let me win at anything. Why was that? And my dad said, well, I thought that I felt that if I let you win at something where you couldn't really win, that was like lying to you. And I would never be dishonest. I never want to be dishonest with you. And I said that in the eulogy and I had several like, you know, people, my dad's age come up to me and said, so glad you, you said that because that's what I do with my kids. And that's, (laughs) that's what I believe too. And I'm like, ah, I don't think that was a good thing. You know, like that one of the big things that I try to do with my son is I've let him win sometimes. And every once in a while, I show him that I can win, but I don't. And because there's a balance to be struck, my dad was very like, "This is the right way to do it, and that's it." You know, sorry, um, that was a, maybe a no, really too no, long answer to your question. Was very,
0: he was, he was very, he was. It, it's not his, your dad and my dad sound very similar, and you know, he's just very A B C, um, yeah. you know, point A to point B kind of person. You know, that that's, and it was kind of similar for me too with with my dad, where you know he was always supportive of. You know, my brother and I both getting into acting and filmmaking and, 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 things like that. He never fully understood it. You know, he was, he was still very much the, okay, we'll have a backup plan, you know, but, oh, yeah, uh, which is, you know, in retrospect, a good idea because I definitely needed it. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, he, it was very much the same way where, you know, he was very, there's a right and a wrong way to do everything. And it wasn't that he was, you know, he wasn't a dick about it, but he was occasionally a dick about it. Um. And then going into going into the, the the letter you wrote for your son when your son was born, you know, as a creative person, we had we had comedian Dusty Harvey on here uh, a couple times. And in the times between we first had him and we had him again, he had had a daughter. And I asked him if if, you know, becoming a father and this is, I guess, just because I don't have kids of my own. And so I, I don't know. But um, having a child as a creative person, do you find that it affects not so much your creative process, but just how you approach how you, I, mean, I guess it would be your creative process how you approach projects and things.
1: Um, I believe that everything in your life is fuel for your creative life. You know that you can't if if your if your life and things happening in it aren't affecting you as an artist, then you're maybe not being so much of an artist. That's that's part and and maybe that's a little too harsh because some people are just craftsmen in terms of their work. Um, So I can't help having it affect me. Um, Certainly it's changed. I think most of the things that have happened in my life have kind of pushed me to be continually more compassionate, you know, because hopefully when you have tough things happen or you struggle with something that, that it opens your eyes to things other people were struggling with and so I think like a lot of people who didn't have p- kids I was a little unsympathetic to some parents who would complain about a thing and I'm like well just do it this way and now that I am a parent and I try to just do it that way and see that oh that doesn't work <laughs> you know, <laughs> and how much harder this whole thing is than I knew that it was that's changed the other thing that's changed is that my you know when you're a parent your schedules just not your own mm-hmm. and so where I could just go well I'm just gonna spend a month working my ass off on this thing, you can't, you know, if you have a kid, well, I got to pick pick that kid up at school, you know? Like, I there's just, that has to happen. There's nobody here to take, I got to make the kid dinner. I got to help them with their homework. I got to do whatever you got to do with the kid. And so that's been like, oh, it's not just that when you have a kid, that becomes the most important thing in the world and you're overwhelmed by all these emotions. And those things happen, although maybe not quite like they happen in movies, but it's just like, no, I have to deal with this right now. You know, and I have a kid who is um, sometimes emotional and sometimes, you know, he's got ADHD and he's, you know, he requires a lot of attention to help him. And so that is that's changed my life in a massive number of ways. It's a and
0: it's it's one of those it's just what's one of those things is you never really know. You know, I can sit here and say all day long, you know, whether or not I want to have kids. But at the end of the day, you never really know what it's
1: like until you have some of your own, I guess. Um, Yep. I have a buddy, one of my friends from film school, who runs summer camps. He is the director of a YMCA summer camp. And he's been doing summer camps for 20 years. And so he has tons of experience dealing with 100 kids, 200 kids, and being in charge. And he's dealt with angry kids and sad kids and lonely kids and charismatic kids and brilliant kids and dumb kids and dangerous kids and all this stuff. And so he is a kid expert. And he just had a kid four years ago. And what he has said to (laughs) me is... It's totally different. Yeah, I knew like this whole parent, it's being the guy running the camp, all that stuff that taught him about kids has nothing to do with being the parent of his kid all the time. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. I, 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 I was a teacher for a number of years
0: and, and, you know, my, I have two very young siblings who I kind of helped raise for a while, you know, just because I was at that age, but yeah, something something just tells me when I see my I'm, I'm getting to that age too, age now too, where my friends are having kids and it's no longer weird. because um, right. for the longest time it was like, wow, we're kind of young to be. Now I'm 31 and it's like, nope, nope, that's appropriate, that's fine. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, S- Steve Morris, I could I could I could sit here and talk to you for hours. Um, I, you're you listening to you having you you know the appearances you've had on on the Outlaw Nation and. And the conversations you and John have had on the cinephiles and in the cinephile shorts and and just the, the things that you I, I, I love listening to you talk about stuff. And I could sit here and poke your brain all day. Um, but uh, obviously, we, we you 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 have things to do and I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, I, I just the one last thing I like to do when I have people on here. You've been sitting here for an hour and letting me let me pelt you with questions. Um, I like to give my guests an opportunity if they have any questions they want to ask me to uh, even the playing field a little bit.
1: Hmm. Um, well, here's, here, I guess, here's the question I would have is that, so, uh, uh, how long have you been doing stand-up? Uh, it'll be 15 years in October, started wow. in high school. What are you thinking about? I mean, it's just a rough question, but what's the future, right? I think we're still trying to figure it out. We,
0: uh, when, when COVID first, when the quarantine first hit and, you know, cause we, we have two clubs here in town that are very big. Um, one's a national chain and one's the oldest club in ohio and and um we call we call that one home you know wiley's has been in, in ohio longer than any other club and that's home to us and not being able to go there every week we we we're all getting antsy you know we we did things like you know we started discord servers to get together and just chat about joke writing ideas but you know it's we 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 all i think pose that question to each other at least once a week somebody posts something in the facebook group of like where do we go from here and i think a lot of us are kind of afraid that you know uh, a a tried and true system that's been around since the 60s and the 70s um is going to need to change drastically like a lot of things are in in the world i, I don't think anything's going to be able to go back to to square one again after
1: this I mean I hopefully you know after the 1918 flu things went back you know that yeah. there was a certain point where people weren't worried about getting sick anymore and things went back but there's gonna be a year or two at least yeah. where things are, and, and I just think about the, there's certain things and stand up being one of them that is so intimate mm-hmm. and it's so much about your connection to a live audience mm-hmm. you know watching stand up over zoom ain't gonna be the same You know, it's I,
0: you know, that's why like when I tell one of the one of the things that's been kind of painful for standups, especially has been the advent of this is weird to say, but like the advent of of smartphones, because now, oh, yeah, people, people will go to an open mic, which open mics are just notoriously awful. open mics are no comedian likes open mics um, where they're trying something new or trying something tried and true to a room with five drunk people in it that aren't paying attention. And they get no laughs. And then those videos hit the Internet. And like, see, this person sucks. Like, well, no, it just didn't work that night. But if you go see me in a proper comedy setting with an audience that gives a shit, you might see a totally different reaction. And and I'm seeing the same, you know, the, the two industries I am concerned about are stand up and and live music. Yeah. As, as a big music fan, um, I know a lot of bands and artists I listen to right now are kind of wondering what they're going to do because they can't book concerts right now and we've seen where like blake shelton did the and and garth uh, was it no um not garth brooks um drawn a blank but they did these drive-in concerts um a band i listened to just over the weekend did a thing with full sale university where they put together a big full stage production in one of full sales uh stages and just live streamed it um and it's it's not as you know, it's weird to see because there's no audience reaction. So it affects the energy of the performers on stage. But stand up's one of those things where if you're not getting immediate feedback, you don't know if something works or not.
1: Well, there's the, the great quote from uh, Jackie Gleason that is the great thing about comedy is that it has an instant critic mm-hmm. is that if people laugh, it was funny. If they don't laugh, it wasn't funny. And that's not always true. Sometimes people don't laugh and it was funny. Yeah. But like the there's that give and take when you're with an audience, you know that you feel it's going, and just on the smartphone thing, you know, I, I've talked to enough comedians and listened to enough comedians. This Is sometimes you got to work out the joke, and sometimes you're working out stuff on stage, and 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 comedy frequently exists in the gray area of offensive. You know, mm-hmm. and so when you're working out the joke over something about sex or about race or about politics or about something sometimes you might go too far trying to work out that joke and realize, Oh, I can't go that far, but that's the one that someone recorded on their smartphone. And suddenly there's the the most important video in your life is this joke that didn't quite work where you went too far, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's really a troubling thing. It can be a location
0: thing too. I've done, you know, i done, I did a set in, in Columbia, South Carolina. And then the next week I did it back here in Dayton, Ohio and jokes that landed really well in Columbia, Died on arrival here in Dayton, yeah. and, and vice versa. It's all about the mentality of the area, and yeah, it's 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 the comedy's complex. People is what we're trying to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I think about all these uh, art forms and and food too. Restaurants where it's like part of it is you're in this small space with these people, and that is the experience. And, and like, yes, I could get that food to go. But that's not the experience. And yeah, I can I can listen to a, a a YouTube video of you in your basement doing your comedy routine, but that ain't gonna be the same thing. No, you know we've seen it with the talk shows. Uh, you know, Jimmy Kimmel or, or or
0: John Oliver. As much as I love watching Last Week Tonight, watching him do it in an empty white room with no audience doesn't quite land the same as it did in a room with this in a studio
1: with 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 a hundred people sitting in seats. That it's funny that one actually works pretty well for me. I love the show. Yeah. And 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 it's because what he's doing is so um deep and complicated. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the stuff is still landing with me even without the laughs Right. But some of the other ones it's like it's like <laughs> death. You know? I, know, I think I think Kimmel's the only one who has been able to pull it off, but it's because he's got his daughter there
0: and she mm. she keeps screwing with him, which is fantastic. <laughs> um but Steve Morris, uh, I can't, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on and doing this show today. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I've loved having you on. I've loved getting to talk to you. Hopefully, get to talk to you again in the near future. Um, just so for the folks at home know, uh, you know where can they? Because I know, I know you're not a big on this. You don't have a huge social media presence. Um, but where can the folks find you? Where can they? Where can they track down some of your uh, your film projects? Where can the folks find you online?
1: So, first of all, the assistance is on iTunes, so you can rent it there. Um, Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear is free on Amazon Prime. Definitely check those things out. Um, as far and 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 definitely the cinephiles, if you're a movie fan, check out search. Do a search for the Cinephiles podcast. We have done 150 movies ish, and I am certain that there's something on the list that's one of your favorite films. So go on the list of the episodes, find your favorite movie, listen to it. And, you know, and definitely let us know what you think. And you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris and on Instagram at SR Morris one. And I'm I'm old for the social media thing. <laughs> I, I do my best. <laughs> you know, I'm on there. But, it, you know, I'm an old guy. If I didn't if I didn't do stuff like this, I probably would have ditched it a long
0: time ago. But also, I yeah. love posting pictures of my dogs because they're cute. But I'm that guy. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Steve Morris, thank you again so much for coming on the show. And and guys, that is going to do it for this week's episode of The Basement Lounge. You can get more about this show at our website, basementloungepod.com and follow me on all the social media at Mike Shea Comedy. And until next time, as always, folks, remember to live well, rock on, take care of each other, and bye bye